right, everybody. Welcome. This is Project Herpetoculture Podcast, episode 64, and I'm your host, Roy Arthur Blodgett, joined, as always, by the charismatic and handsome Philip Leitz of Arids Only. And we have an excellent guest today. I'm really excited for this show. And of course, before we jump in, I'm going to go over our housekeeping. And first, I want to give a shout out to Dylan and the Animals at Home Network for hosting our show it's a pleasure to be part of this network. And um, yeah, we're really grateful for that. So I also want to give a shout out to Charlie, Mr. Vernal Pools himself, who um, edits our audio and keeps us on the rails here. Um, he does a lot for the show behind the scenes and just want to give some extra appreciation to him. And um, I also want to give a shout out to our sponsors. So we have Custom Reptile Habitats and they are makers of premium PVC reptile enclosures and they also have Universal Rocks products and a whole bunch of other good stuff on their website. So if you're in the market for any of that, and you're looking to make a purchase, if you do so through the link in our description or bio, we'll receive a small commission and no additional cost to you. And that's always greatly appreciated on our end. Um, we also have Cold-Blooded Caffeine, and they are roasters of delicious coffees from all over the world. And they donate 5% of the proceeds from each bag of coffee sold to conservation in those coffee growing regions which is a really awesome thing. So check them out. And if you do decide to try some new coffee from them, use the code Project Herp for 10% off your order. And then lastly, we have uh, Fairytale Dragons. That's uh, Heather Moy and Ron St. Pierre. Obviously, they are legends in the space of herpetoculture, and it means a lot that they um, have signed on to support the show in the way that they have. So give them a follow. And um, yeah, if you're in the market for Bearded Dragons, or, um, you know, some of the crown giant animals, emerald tree bows, any of that kind of amazing stuff, give them a follow and um, look no further than fairy tale for that stuff. And lastly, uh, I'll just give a little plug for our Patreon. Um, that's if you're interested in supporting the show directly with a tip or a donation, um, we're always uh, really appreciating that. And um, we're starting to build the Patreon a little bit more. We're starting to do a monthly um, li live chat with our subscribers over there. Um, just do some standard herb talk and hopefully we'll be able to answer some questions and help our, um, our subscriber base over there. So if you're interested in joining that community, please do so at patreon.com slash project herpeticulture. So um, with all of that out of the way, I'm very pleased to introduce our guest for today. And that is Alex Myers of Alex's Agamids on Instagram. Alex, welcome to the show. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's an honor. Yeah, sure. it's a pleasure. Yeah, happy to have you, man. Um, so the way we want to start off is can you can you just tell us a little bit about your sort of herpetocultural origin story, like how you got started in this? Um, and that can be, you know, like whether you want to make it like a clean narrative or if it's something that's always been there or if there was like a particular um, like ignition event for you that got you involved in a more significant way. Like uh, we want to hear about all of it. So tell us a little bit. Yeah, I I think I'd like to start off by stating that I'd always had a general interest in reptiles and amphibians, most notably snakes when I was younger. I was always watching, say, like snake wranglers on TV. I think that was there's a couple episodes with Jim Harrison in there of Kentucky Reptile Zoo and any of the documentaries that featured uh, like Rom Whitaker and his work with King Cobras. Those are my favorite snake in the whole world. They're fascinating. And I can recall my parents telling me how and I was like four or five, like, oh, I want to be a herpetologist and move to India. And then years later, 
I was at, say, like a public outreach event. This was specifically in Lake Forest, Illinois. It was called Reptile Rampage, and it was hosted by a facility that's unfortunately no longer present, the uh, Wildlife Discovery Center, which was run by a man named Rob Carmichael. And I was holding a corn snake from, I want to say it was a member of the Chicago Herpetology Society. There were a bunch of organizations there, uh, like uh, Crosstown Exotics, which is a big outreach herpetology event uh, group, as well as Madison Area Herp Society, and obviously the CHS, which is really well known. And I said, man, yeah, what zoo is this snake from? I would have been probably six years old at the time. The person said it was their pet. And it was sort of at that moment, I was like, wait, you can keep a reptile as a pet. I had never thought about that. I didn't have a ton of pets in my early years. When I say early, you know, prior to being 11. And from there, it took me down the rabbit hole. Uh, definitely being a kid, I grew up with the internet. That's definitely one of the non-traditional stories from especially a lot of my mentors and uh, herpeticulturists that I look up to. You know, they had to do everything literally by the books. I had basic YouTube, the you know, Internet Explorer, which is practically extinct now. And you know, how to care for a corn snake. Bam, bunch of results. I believe you had Kathy Love's website up on there. Uh, who are legends in the corn snake community. Mm -hmm. And by the time I was 11, I started out with two pet corn snakes. And here I am now with a bunch of lizards. I still actually have those very first corn snakes. I've had them 12 years, but they're both 17 years old and they're still kicking and doing strong. So it's, it's cool to, um, I guess have had that moment and really just, make me dive into all of these amazing animals, both in the captive sector, uh, especially in the last few years, I've also gotten more into field herping and just, you know, seeing, I've seen timber rattlesnakes in the wild three times this past year, which has been awesome because that's my favorite North American crotalid. And nice. um, just being able to, you know, hear different perspectives from other keepers and really try and not only dial in and further advance, I guess, my personal husbandry and just betterment of keeping animals long-term uh, but also just trying to focus more on the conservation aspect. Um, and in general, just I really am a big advocate for, you know, everybody wants to have a pet and I respect that. But when you get to more of the professional level of keeping, there's almost some duty I feel I've got that with the knowledge I have, I, I have to share that. And with the knowledge mentors have shared with me, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll go right off the bat and simply say, you know, one of my mentors, Ryan Shermel of Boreas Exotics, uh, he always told me what good is good information if it can't be shared for the good of others. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's sort of, I guess, how it happened. And there was a lot of stuff in between, I guess I should have highlighted, you know, when I was, my brother was an athlete, my sister was really into reading. They didn't have reptile camp. That just wasn't a mm-hmm. thing. Um, but as I had mentioned earlier, that facility, the Wildlife Discovery Center, uh, I actually got to volunteer there and eventually work there a little bit. And that was with now people who are quite well recognized, like Matthew Most worked there, Sarpamitra, Stephen Cush, you know, Scrub Python, mm-hmm. amazing uh, Somalia keeper. Uh, Zach Bullock was another mentor of mine there. And, you know, you might laugh now, but being 14 years old and learning how to read the body language of Python. I almost took a bite to the face from an 11 foot olive python, but it taught me to be careful when opening enclosures for large constrictors and understanding basic concepts of thermal gradients, learning how to program and set up a herp stat, 
And I was able to do that when I was 14, 15, and just thinking how those skills have really benefited me to where if I'm setting up an incubator, I don't have to think twice on how to program a thermostat. Um, And it's, and then eventually, obviously, you know, have to make money as a kid. So the volunteer work, I left the Discovery Center and pretty much since high school, every summer, I just would work part-time at my local exotic shop. Nothing too fancy. My boss has a very strict set of ethics regarding we don't sell any imported stuff. So you're not going to see basilisks, Nile monitors. We breed all of our own ball pythons. We buy colubrids from local people, leopard geckos, bearded dragons. Uh, his, his, the line that I think is amazing, and again, this is coming from a business owner, is that if it can't be kept in a commercially available, easy to purchase tank, we're not going to carry it. And mm-hmm. um, because of that, it sort of took me down more of that Yes, customer education standpoint. How do you set up a heat pad? How do you program that, that thermostat? How do you feed your first corn snake? Because these are experiences I had the privilege of getting when I was 14. And then as an 18, 20-year-old working there uh, now in between my college career, it's just being able to, again, share that knowledge. And here I am today with my all those experience combined. That's awesome. That was great. So what, how did it... How did it what were the, uh, how did it evolve from these, you know, these first corn snakes that you got to some, uh, gigantic dinosaur-esque agamids? Oh man. So the moment for me there would have been, if I remember correctly, my sixth grade year of middle school. And we had to do a project on a hobby. So, you know, some people were like, oh, soccer, football. And I had to explain to my English teacher, I believe his name was Mr. Greenberg. He was a big Rush fan. I, I love Rush, one of my favorite bands. And I said, what about the hobby of caring for a corn snake? He's like, I'll allow it. <laughs> and I, I, I had to cite a website that I was using. So I pulled up back with Reptiles Magazine, but it was when it was called the reptilechannel.com. I don't know if you guys remember that or not, but mm-hmm. the, um, the, it, this would have been, yeah, 2011 or no, 2012. And literally published on the website was Scott Corning's Sales and Dragon Care Sheet. So my first thing I see when I open this site is this purple and blue lizard with a massive tail. Like, I love Jurassic Park. I'd read the first book and, and the Lost World scene movies by then. And I was just blown away by this animal. I was like, what the heck is that? And so, you know, I'm carefully looking over my shoulder to make sure the teachers walk around, doesn't see like, are you looking at corn snakes? Or not that they could probably care either way, but I'm, I'm clicking on this care sheet. I'm reading it. It's like, oh, there's three species at the time and just these purple and blue lizards. And then you see a black and gold one and this green and teal one. What the heck? And then you go onto his website, which reptiles the reptile channel had linked below, and you're like, oh, you know, they're five hundred seventy-five dollars, baby. And I'm in sixth grade, mm-hmm. getting my three dollar weekly allowance. So that that shut down the idea. Um, but on Scott's website, then he had posted Australian water dragons, which man, at the time, I believe he was selling them for two hundred fifty dollars. So they've they've skyrocketed now. Mm-hmm. But uh, and I think. Even there was a time that when I went to a Tinley Park where somebody had what was left of Burt Langerworth's original collection, they were selling subadults for like a oh. hundred bucks. But again, those days are long gone. Uh, regardless, mm-hmm. you know, oh, two hundred fifty dollars Australian water dragon. I can't afford that. And so then, and I had found out about you know a Chinese water dragon, which fifteen dollar import. So little me is thinking, oh, I save up a few months and I can get that. 
And sure enough, uh, I actually didn't have to get my own because a friend of mine had heard that I had taken an interest in them. And so for one of my birthday parties, this friend comes walking up my door with a blue critter keeper and there inside of it is a juvenile Chinese water dragon. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that was the spark. That was, I still have that exact same female. She's 10 years old and she still laid eggs this year, had some babies. Wow. So, oh, that's, that's awesome. Was there, that's how they, sorry. No, it's okay. Was there like a, was there like a, a time frame in which you had to sort of like a, like a scale up and adjust your care? Like, were you doing everything right from the jump or were, did she stay in that critter keeper for a while before you're like, something's not right? Uh, quite the, so what I did is I, I threw in her 10 gallons this tank. Okay. Sure. No, I, I had understood that these needed heat and UV. The snakes were right. on heat mass at the time, you know, beginner level care. Sure. And eventually that transferred to upgrading her to an old 55 gallon which I still have in my storage room. This is, it was the type of old 55 gallon tank where it was the wood finish. Oh yeah. Not the black. Yeah. yeah so I, I, I consider that my antique tank and she stayed in that for about a few years. I want to say 2016 is then when I had understood that the true spatial requirements of lizards like that require a custom built enclosure. And so uh, because of that, I convinced my father I had been saving up some money and we built a big plywood cage for her. So definitely a case of understanding the hobby. Uh, from what I understand, too, that was around 2015. So I think the Arcadia T8s were finally being sold by Reptile Basics. And so I picked up some of those at Tinley. And I had bought, you know, again, T8 fixtures. So you go to Home Depot, line it across the top. And it was a pretty solid enclosure. It still works. Uh, I've actually still got her in it. I've just touched up and fixed it a lot. But um you know, I'm, I like to think that it was a big teaching moment as far as having to understand, you know, balancing ambient temperatures and high humidity because they need it hot and they need it humid. And a lot of people seem to have a hard time maintaining that. You know, if you have a bearded dragon, high heat lamp dries out the cage. You have a crested gecko, fairly mild ambient temperatures. You can maintain 80% relative humidity spikes with ease and then enter the water dragon who needs 85 degree ambient temps with 80 to 90% humidity. And it, it got to a case where uh, for my birthday, I had bought, and they don't even make these anymore. I was actually showing my local ZooMed rep that I still had. It was called the ZooMed Hygrotherm. Oh, yeah. So it was like this, yeah, this digital, and you, you could put a fogger on it and a ceramic heater on it, or, you know, now I've got a deep heat projector on it. But the idea is that that made it so easy and forgettable. And then I could just put the sensor next to my window. So it would adjust with the day night cycle because nice. it had a photo cell in it. So during the winter, 11 hours of daylight, it just makes it so that way then you have, you know, your prolonged night period because it sees that the sun's out. And so she, she, was living her best life and honestly like the first five years of having that water drag and i i breeding had never even occurred to me i just wanted to understand this animal i got to wake up every day and just be privileged like wow this is the coolest freaking lizard ever this bright green emerald lizard blue stripes the you know the speckles down the side they are beautiful <laughs> lizards um oh, yeah and then 2016 i believe is then when i had read ryan Shermel's reptiles magazine article called uh, enter the water dragon and there he highlighted breeding and, and it just for whatever reason it clicked i believe reptiles magazine if i recall 
they use like that classic stock image of the big head profile of a male. I think it's on Shutterstock. So mm. uh, the water dragon I started out with was a female and she's still, I think she's beautiful, a little bit biased, mm-hmm. of course. But to truly see, um, I guess, like the extent of the sexual dimorphism, because I wasn't, I didn't have social media as a kid. I was very anti-social. I didn't have Facebook till I was, I want to say like 16. Um, you know, and I like have the people in high school were already on Instagram, or whatever. I didn't even think about that. And just to, I guess, see like, oh, I could follow his account on Facebook. So I open up Facebook and I'm seeing more images of water dragons. Ryan was working with sailfins and I sort of had that flashback moment like, oh, I always love sailfins. And I had worked with sailfins at the Discovery Center. But just to see, shoot, there are other people that are truly interested in this. It, it clicked. I was like, well, maybe I should give breeding a shot. And two years later, I picked up a, a wild caught subadult male. He actually bred her that nice. year, which is pretty cool. Yeah, um, very cool. You, you were saying about the husbandry too. Yeah, the, uh, that enclosure I built was so well insulated. I actually, I was a novice. I couldn't tell how gravid she was. So she laid three clutches of eggs in the enclosure, and I came home one night, and there were babies running around inside the cage. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. That's so fun. That's extremely fun. Yeah, that's super cool. I mean, you never know because you know so many people kind of go through like the like the growing pains of learning how to care for the reptile, you know, like I know I went through it and then, you know, cause I, I didn't start very well with some of the early, 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 early stuff I tried keeping, but that was when I was super young. So mm-hmm. I know what you mean. Um, that's really cool that you set it up that way. I think, I think we've all had that, that, you know, that moment, you know, I remember this is really silly, but I remember when I was, I was in, Oh, I don't know. I might've been 15, 15 years old, something like this. And I'd been talking to my dad forever before I bred any bearded dragons or well, yeah, I think it was a little bit before I had ever bred any of the bearded dragons that I had something, something along those lines. And I remember just being like, okay, like I've got, I'm I'm gonna, I got this great idea. Like I, you know, listen, hear me out, dad. Like I'm going to build this big pen and I want it to be four feet wide and four feet deep and then three feet tall and I had this image in my head of an elevated basking platform that was like had two by fours leading up to it and was just like a big slate of two by fours that went across under the basking zone. <clears throat> and uh, I remember when I finally built it with him and I like stepped into the thing and I was like, I can sit in this. This is this is nuts. This is like the sickest cage imaginable. And it, and it was like I literally laid like a a. Uh, you know, like a, like some big screen across the top of the enclosure or, you know, where the lights would sit on. And then, uh, you know, this whole thing. And I remember setting it up and I put like three, three or four bearded dragons in there. And I just remember being like, this is, this is dope. Like, this is never going to change. This is as good as it gets. Like, there's no better way to do this. Uh, and, and it, there's something really quite satisfying when you're really sure that you're doing a great job. And, and even, the, I mean, for the, for the, for the era and for the way I was keeping, it was, it was a great job, you know, mm-hmm. but, but, uh, it, it, there really is something about being able to, um, uh, get that satisfaction out of what you're, uh, what you're, what you're keeping, how you're keeping, you know, and you really feel like the animals are getting their best and you, you feel like they, you know, they can, they can, um, you know, really thrive fully. So it's a, it's a beautiful thing to be able to be able to manage that. That's awesome, man. Um, so, so like just out of curiosity, like what is, uh, for those who might not know, like, what is your, what is your primary like focus of your collection right now? And then, and then, you know, do you have any sense of, um, 
you know, like where you might take that in the future, like, you know, cause I know you're, you're a college student, right? So, um, that, that obviously college can throw a monkey wrench in whatever it is that you're up to. So I'm just sort of curious how you're, how you're managing now and sort of like what your goals are, uh, you know, in terms of what you'd like to do, what you see yourself doing kind of in the future with these, with these things. Yeah. The main, it's definitely shifted a lot as I've tried. I, one of the biggest things that I, I've tried to be very real with myself um, like it's good to dream big, but at the end of the day, you know, I've seen other people, uh, especially in my age group where they get very impulsive and then the animals suffer because of it. And so, and I think part of it too, is just having, I said, I, I like to really attribute a lot of my success and knowledge to people who took the time to train me, um, mm-hmm. not, not to quickly step back. You were saying how the hurdles with a water dragon potentially early on, the only reason I think I did as well as I did initially was because at the time of raising her, I had started volunteering at that nature center. Mm-hmm. So I understood how to set up a heat panel, a thermostat, and create humidity gradients because I was doing that twice a week, volunteering with a large collection of animals. And then I could refine that knowledge to my collection of, say, three animals. You know, I had a small collection. I was just a pet keeper, but I was focusing on all that time learning with other animals that I didn't have to pay for and then applying that to my animals so they could have the best level of welfare at the time per se um as far as what i want to do yeah it shifted most notably in the case of the chinese water dragons because i love them i won't lie there was a period of time where i was truly fighting against this import market um one of my again i'm going to highlight the mentors ryan mcveigh i volunteered at uh, erica's rescue is his wife now Mm -hmm. and he would explain to me that you know, keep what you love if the mm-hmm. laws for whatever reason said yeah you can't make money selling animals you just have to give them to people what would you keep and for me again it's just these freaking cool dragon-like agamid lizards they're huge mm-hmm. they're awesome definitely not for everybody but at the end of the day it really shaped me to realize i would rather have a stable job i love and then come home and have a hobby that i don't care if i'm losing money or you know which with these lizards you definitely do it's just the fact that you get to be there every day and see such a cool, badass lizard. You know, I ran I'm in my dorm right now, but when I'm home, I get to wake up and see a lizard that has existed in Indonesia or specifically in the case of the water dragon, say Southeast Asia for millennia. Mm-hmm. And it's right there. Like that, that's what it is. And I get to see that, like, you know, and I guess in the case of the future is that with battling the previous case of oversaturation of these imported lizards it is clear now with them no longer coming in due to the revisions that were made uh, regarding their CITES appendix status in February 2023 that I would like to increase the amount of breeding because I do fear to some extent that the demand will skyrocket as it already is and that may encourage smuggling efforts yeah uh, whereas instead, if you can outcompete that by supplying a steady stream of captive bred offspring, I think you can meet that area of, because at the end of the day, yeah, they're not for everybody. When they were coming in as imports, I have seen and I've gotten hundreds of emails and social media messages. Hey, I just bought this lizard at a reptile show. Then they messaged me six months later because they've killed it and they think a captive bred one will be bulletproof. Mm-hmm. So I think with this new, I guess the new appendix, it means that it's going to sort of deter the cheap keepers. And I'm not trying to sound elitist by saying that the reality is, is that if you're not willing to spend the money to keep an animal, you shouldn't keep it. And I know I'm going to piss a lot of people off 
saying that. But in the case of a water dragon, if you could produce even, say, like a thousand a year, there is the demand there to where I think you could easily supply a thousand people who are truly going to give it that big custom built setup, the proper UV lights, the proper diet. And at the same time, it's enough to where if you're wholesaling even to these distributors, they're not going to want to turn to the imports because at the end of the day, maybe perhaps the captured bred ones will be cheaper than a smuggled import. We're not at that point yet because it's literally been not even a year since their status is updated and let alone less than a year because the last shipment came in on June 11th. Um, and I only know that because my buddy and I bought all of those, but um, it's, it's literally a case where if they were still coming as imports, I think I would maybe keep just a small group because I truly love them and continue focusing my efforts on the, the hydrosaurus, which is my main goal that I'm trying to build to. It's just, as I'm sure again, you know, like maintaining a large group of animals is not cheap. I'm definitely mm-hmm. not in the financial position to do that yet, let alone responsibly. But if I want to do it with Hydrosaurus, you need a warehouse and you need mm-hmm. big cages and you need big UV lights and big brand. It's to do that right takes time. And I'm very fortunate that yeah. I've got people I'm working with to slowly build towards that. It's just this is something that I've been dreaming of since I saw that article in Reptiles Magazine. So where we are now, eight years later, and it's it's another step forward. But I'm really hoping another eight years from now, maybe I'll be able to look back and be like, dang, that that's what I wanted to do. And I actually took the time to do it. But I'm not there yet. I'm not yeah. I'm just going to go with the flow and at the same time, do what I can to learn the most uh, I'm able to every day on these amazing animals. Just because I don't have 40 sail fins doesn't mean I'd like to get there eventually. But if I start out with a couple, raise them up, appreciate them, understand the basic husbandry, refine that, tweak it. Eight years later, I'll know what I can and can't do. And then add a few more. Those animals will be good and you grow. Absolutely. Right? That's the way to go. That everybody's goal. Yeah, I mean, gradual growth and progression is the way to go. I think in herpetoculture, especially, it's like it's really easy to kind of project a certain you know expectation onto what it will be like to keep a certain species, and it could be really different when you actually are working with them, you know. And so, it's starting, you know, with just a couple animals and getting to know like is this species, is this genus really what I think it is, what it what it what it's represented to me in my mind, you know, before diving headlong is a good way to go and. It's really cool to hear just like throughout your your story, just this the role that mentorship has played in it. And it feels um in some ways it feels like very like fortunate that you, you know, kind of grew up in the area you, that you did where there is like a strong, it seems like there's a strong culture of that in her in the herpetoculture scene in that region, you know, with with those herb societies that you spoke to and the Crosstown Exotics crew. And I'm curious if you could speak a little bit more to you know what that's been for you and um, you know, like how has it changed? You know, has, is it different now? Do you see that there are different challenges for, you know, young, young folks coming into herpetoculture now that, um, you know, herb societies seem to be, you know, dwindling in number and influence and things are going more and more online and to YouTube and to influencers and stuff like that. I'm curious if you could, you could speak to that from your perspective. Yeah, I, I think the best way to say it is that the mentorship prevented me from being impulsive. As I said, I knew a lot of friends in high school. 
I had at the time, you know, now I had bred water dragons. I was building up a group, but even then, I want to say like eight total animals, which to the average person, like, oh, that's a small reptile collection. And I had already been keeping since I was 11 years old. So six years, eight pets per se, and, you know, breeding the water dragons now. And there were people who I had gotten to know that within a year, they had accumulated almost 20 animals and then they just got burnt out. So literally in the period of me still keeping these individuals got into the hobby, they peaked, thought they were the best, and then they get burnt out and they leave. Whereas I think through the ideas of mentorship is that it's not so much about me getting as many animals as possible, but trying to just appreciate the animals in general. Um, I'll, I'll quote and you know reference Ryan Shermel again. After I had read his article, I thought it was hilarious that I found out he lived half an hour from me. And it got yeah. to the point in high school because he kept sailfins and water dragons. He had the resources for a fairly sizable group. And he had awesome lizards like basilisks and whatnot, which I would love to keep one day. But instead of me acquiring, say, a dozen basilisks, I could go over to his place and work with two dozen, get my feel for those lizards, get a feel for the work that goes into it, hosing down 20 cages, gut loading superworms and crickets and roaches, the actual nitty gritty of it versus what you read online, what you watch on YouTube. I do think to some extent, and again, I'm not trying to sound entitled here, you know, we edit everything online. We make it into a short Instagram reel and that 30 second video of you preparing a salad and feeding it to your cute iguana actually takes five minutes of preparation to make sure you balance your calcium powder on there and you're actually considering what you're feeding that pet. Mm -hmm. Um, And then people do that like, dang, this actually takes five minutes. It's not a 30 second Instagram reel. Whereas through mentorship, you're actually working there. You're there. I mean, I say I would finish my high school classes. I want to say at 325 is when classes got out. Got to Ryan's place by four, and sometimes I didn't get back home till seven, eight o'clock at night. <laughs> right, heat up my Totino's pizza rolls, and then go to school <laughs> the next day. Right, like it's that's the idea is that it truly gave me an idea of how much time it takes to just commit to animal care. And yeah. you know, you, some there's probably some listeners laughing like, "Oh, I've been doing this for years," and that's exactly it. They stuck with it. They they know like, yeah, it takes five minutes to make a salad, and I think there are people in my age range that don't know what that's like because they're so focused on the media of it and not actually gaining that experience. You know, you, everybody wants to keep a sailfin dragon because you see a single photo of an Indonesian account that just grabbed a stressed wild caught male and it's sitting so perfectly on their arm. And then you actually keep them and they try and run away from you. They will charge you and they actually do really awful if you try to handle them because it stresses them the hell out. Uh, and that's the thing is it's that false perception in social media. And I don't think it's necessary. I'm not trying to say social media is a bad thing, but I wish maybe more people. <laughs> okay, fair enough. But the, the idea is that I wish more people would focus on the true educational outreach and understanding of the animal care and even the animals in general. Uh, when I would volunteer with the Madison Area Herpetology Society, I would go to, I want to say it was called like the, not the pet expo like the wisconsin pet fair mm-hmm. just a booth educating about animals you know i'd have a boa constrictor around my neck yeah this snake gets eight feet you'll need a big enclosure you need to get a steady supply of frozen thawed guinea pigs and rabbits and half the time the people are like wow i didn't know that 
Whereas mm-hmm. on Instagram, it's like, here I am feeding my boa. Five second transition, feed boa makes it look like it's done. When in reality, yep. you, know, you actually have to thaw those big ass rodents out for quite <laughs> a few hours before they're safe to feed to a large constrictor. Uh, and I, again, the same can be said for anything I'm sure y'all keep. It's literally, it's work. And I think unfortunately, the the presence of social media as well as the lack of mentorship in true person-to-person education means that we we're not highlighting how much work it actually takes to maintain these animals in a respectable manner. And even then, if you understand that process of yeah, making a salad or gut loading bugs, suddenly it just fits into your routine. And the experienced mm-hmm. people that are listening now are like, oh yeah, I always remember to gut load my roaches a night before I feed my lizard because it just becomes second nature. And then not only are you improving yeah. the welfare of your animal, but by making those care techniques second nature, you're going to have those animals for a long time. And they're actually going to be healthy. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned something there too, that feels um, kind of uh, near and dear to something I've been thinking about a lot lately, which is it's not, you know, it, it's not just that there's a ton of work involved in caring for stuff. That's true. Yeah. Depending on what you're working with and what the scale you're working at, there's a lot of work involved. And yeah, there's, you know, a steep learning curve involved with whatever it is that you keep because there are uh, features of keeping that you may not understand or have any grasp on until you've gone through the motions with that animal or that species for several years. But also, um, and that's not captured in an, in 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 most social media posts. But also, uh, there's nothing about the current like factory style description of what we do, and sort of like easily consumable description of what we do that highlights the nobility of the work that we're doing in the first place. Mm-hmm. So you know, like something I think about all the time. Well, let me rephrase that. It's not something I think about all the time necessarily. It's just, it's, it's something that frequently scatters across my brain uh, is like beekeeping and sort of, you know, this, this profession, this practice that people regard as, as a sort of noble, necessary uh, line of work. And I agree with that. My mother keeps bees. I have, I happen to follow a handful of beekeeper accounts on various social media platforms because it's just, I think it's awesome. Uh, but, you know, pe- people kind of understand beekeeping through the lens of like, well, we need this for farming. And, you know, they, 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 ge- they generally tend to fail to understand that the honeybee is not native to North America. Mm-hmm. And they also tend to not understand that through that invasive status, they also were at least assistant in the elimination of things like the Carolina parakeet and whatever. And so um, there's all these, there's all this weirdness around that field, but yet people still see it as this sort of, you know, again, this noble, honorable Mm -hmm. work. And I think that I have this desire to uh, convey herpetoculture in a way that, that frames it through that same kind of, um, you know, I'm not trying, it's not meant to be elevated, but yeah, like it's, it's really, it's, it's honest work, you know, like that classic meme. It's like just picking up shit and putting food in bowls, but it's not much, it ain't much, but it's honest work. You know what I mean? And I, and I think Mm -hmm. there's something to that. And I think, uh, one of the things that I like about, uh, the advent of social media and 
point and click access to content is it is forcing people to kind of look outside the norm for more unique ventures in terms of documentary filmmaking and um like you know the the fact the fact that there are entire entire youtube channels filled with people whose entire profession it is to to power wash driveways and and there are people who just watch the power washing happen and they're like man this is great like in my mind there's there's something to be said there for for there there's probably a wealth of interest in people who would appreciate the level of effort the level of lift that goes into doing the kind of work that that we do um mm-hmm. so i i appreciate what you said there yeah i do too there's definitely something about that just the i like that that phrasing of just like the nobility of the work itself and um yeah i mean like that's a lot of i think the that's like one of the merits that i draw from herpetoculture is like just just attending you know, I call it, I just call it the tending to the animals, you know, it's like Catherine, my partner will ask me like, well, what, what are you doing today? I'm tending, tending to the herbs, you know, and that looks like slogging water bowls to and from the stainless steel outdoor sink to clean them and, um, you know, and, and thawing out rodents to feed and, and sitting there getting, teasing the little baby spilotes to get them to grab onto these little button quail. And and it's time consuming, you know, it's a, it's a lot of time, but that's also a lot of what I get from it is just these simple tasks, but um, rewarding tasks and, um, you know, making my way through that checklist each day. And um, I mean, another thing you spoke about, you know, before we kind of went on to this, this tangent about the actual craft itself, but is, you know, just like, like the educational outreach you know, component of, of it. And I noticed that you, you know, recently had this reptiles magazine article. And so I'm curious about just that, what that process was like and like the kind of motivation behind that. And obviously it fits in with that, that educational outreach aspect of it, but if you could speak to it, I'd be, I'd be curious. Yeah. I am trying to see, it would have been last year. I want to say November. Um, The reptiles magazine, Instagram account, I believe it's managed by their editor, John Verata. I that's how you mm-hmm. pronounce his last name. And he uh, he said, would you like to write an article on Chinese water dragons? I've been following your work. And I told him, yes. When do you need it by? And he wanted a deadline of roughly March the next year, which is perfect for me because he messaged during my fall semester finals week. So it's nice. the worst time to even consider that. And the, the thing that I wanted to, I guess, strike is I'm, I'm majoring in wildlife education. I should, I should get that right across the board. So I understand the importance of teaching and, and sharing knowledge in any field. And everyone, at least in the professional, if you will, sector for pediculture. And when I say professional, I mean people who literally breed reptiles for a living. They do that as a profession. Not to make it sound like, oh, he's a professional, he's a high That's not what I mean. Like These are people yeah. who spend that day-to-day you know, nobility work, if you will. Caring for cleaning and selling reptiles to meet ends meet. And yet some of these individuals, who I will not name, I have written articles in Reptiles Magazine that then many newer keepers may say, oh, it's an outdated care sheet. It, it doesn't use primary literature. It's not science-based. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because now that I follow up with it at the International Herp Symposium this year, 
Um, Professor Zach Lohman actually did an entire presentation on science-based herpeticulture and husbandry. And regardless, when I wanted to put this article together, unlike any of the past Water Dragon articles that had been written, so Ryan Schermel's, which is what sparked me to even consider breeding Water Dragons, and he has been a phenomenal mentor, as I no doubtedly repeat. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, Tricia Power, Michael Spears, people who had maybe bred water dragons on and off. And I want to put emphasis on that. Mm-hmm. On and off water dragon breeders. Yeah, I've read water dragons. Here's the article. I did it like twice. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't like that. And I'm sure, um, you know, many of you know the stigma that, hey, I bred something once and suddenly I'm an expert. And this is why I guess I I, I I suffered a little bit from imposter syndrome at the time because of my small sample group of water dragons that I was breeding. I didn't have 200 water dragons. I had, you know, two groups. That's it. And, and so what I needed to do was back my findings based on what we truly know. And so then I went down the whole idea of how do I structure this article. I actually reached out to a friend of my father's who used to be an editor like a, a journal and he helped me get the idea of an introduction who i am but then really tie into not only the natural history of the chinese water dragon i guess asian water dragon if you want to be specific i sometimes chuckle at that name because they technically are only found in like that much of china and there are mm-hmm. more individuals invasive in hong kong than there are actually native in southern china but um <laughs> anyways the idea is that when i when wrote this article, I wanted readers to see that it wasn't just a care sheet on how to keep and breed water dragons, but why I choose to keep and breed them the way I do. You know, I can say mm-hmm. I don't feed rodents, fish, or reptiles to them because even though you saw somebody do it on YouTube, the reality is, is that per the findings of Van Hong at all 2017, we know that the stomach contents of adults, juveniles, and neonates all possess invertebrate prey in there. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to say that the riparian environment of the water dragons i threw in a paper i want to say it was no Stuart at all was the paper in 2019 regarding their cites status but our vulnerable status not cites but uh, mm-hmm. i'm blanking on the paper name regardless it was a paper that justified the the specific environment that they occupied and what their habitat preferences were and then i incorporated that into my enclosure setups and so uh, and even citing legends such as burt langerwerf's book on basic husbandry that I still follow to this day, just to tie in that idea of natural history, as well as experienced people who have bred water dragons in the past. And even though Bert was known for Australian water dragons, there was a period of time where he was producing quite a few uh, Asian water dragons. It's just yeah. that he switched to Australian water dragons because they were more tolerable and actually benefited from his outdoor housing ideology. So that's mm-hmm. where I wanted readers to truly benefit from this Reptiles Magazine article. And what was awesome is that the editor actually included the entire, uh, I guess, uh, citation list. So every paper nice. that I referenced, every book that I referenced, you can look it up. And I even took the time to make sure that all of the research papers, the primary peer-reviewed literature that I cited in there, you can access on Google Scholar. Because there's some mm-hmm. stuff that I can get through my university database that you as like a public user on Google Scholar cannot. And I wanted right. to make sure sure that not only is my information accessible now on reptiles magazine's website but even in the physical copy and now 
uh, these these keepers can actually, hey, I want to learn about the diet of the Indo-Chinese water dragon. Well, there you type in Van Hong et al. 2017, and it will pop up on Google Scholar for you to download a free PDF, and you can interpret those findings as I have. And I just, I wanted to make it so it wasn't a care sheet, but more, here is a guide, and here's where you can find even more stuff. You know, because we 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 talk about the care sheet ideology is, how do I not kill this thing? Yeah. And instead, I wanted to, I guess, provoke further research and appreciation of species while also making it somewhat convenient in a 2,500 word article. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I I feel like that's a really rewarding process to dive into as well. I um I've done the same thing, you know, with all, all the articles I've worked on. Same thing, just like citing the source material and and offering it, you know, in a, in a citations list for people and um yeah having it having it try to be rooted in like this is a creature that like comes from some place <laughs> you know and is shaped by that place and is in, in in its own way is shaping that place you know in some small way and and that that is all um i don't know i think that like that having an understanding of that kind of intimacy it just really informs keeping in a different way. It's a little bit more valuable and, and rewarding or it can be, you know, for some of us. And um, I know Phil's having a bit of connection issues. So he's going to be back in a second, just so you know, Alex. Um, but um, let me get back to my questions list here. I got kind of distracted by this tangent, but um, I'm curious about just like kind of taking a broader view of, of herpetoculture in this moment in time, I'm curious, like, uh, like, what do you, what excites you about it, you know, in this moment? And like, are there any like concerns you have or worries that you have, you know, moving forward, you know, being a, being, like I said, like a pretty young person to this, but who is like, I obviously invested, you know, and in it for the long haul. Um, I'm curious. Yeah. How do you, how do you perceive it on like a broader scale? I mean, there's, there are multiple ways to, I guess, interpret the hobby or the industry. I, I, I should not be calling it a hobby. Like it is yeah. literally an industry. There are product companies, the feeder yeah. business alone, the lighting, the hides, the decor that I've, I've worked part-time at the local exotic shop. So when you're oh, ordering yeah. products, I think sometimes it's easy for me to forget like, oh, we need 15 of the Pangea black hides or whatever and 20 bags of Crested Gecko food. And there are mm. hundreds of other stores ordering the exact same thing. So then that means there is a supplier making thousands of that. Like, oh, yeah. you ever wonder, like, you, it is quite possible that there is somebody who has drowned in a vat of Pangea. Literally <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that the sheer scale of it you know, the death yeah. by crested gecko diet <laughs> jokes aside um i do think because of our growth in the industry and we see in the case with uh like organizations such as us arc and us arc florida how the government is starting to get involved into our hobby and that's why i say industry if it was a hobby the government most likely would not be too involved. But then you look at legislation already in fish keeping, snakeheads banned because they're invasive in the state. The fish people already know, here's the permits we need. Like they're, they're way ahead of us. And like I've got, I started with a tiny fish tank at home and I still have it. It's awesome. But mm-hmm. the, the idea is that 
at the rate we are growing, we're now going to be experiencing that interaction with policymakers, the true, you know, higher up officials, if you will. And we, we need to be like the fish. We need to be like the fish people. We, we need to get our stuff in order. Uh, yes, there are people who do this as legitimate businesses, but at the end of the day, as you know, Phil said, social media, social media sucks. And that's because it takes the few of us who are so big on there and do something terrible that then it ruins it for all of us who are trying to do our best to yeah. appreciate and enjoy what we do. And from an industry standpoint, too, I do think that you were saying earlier, education. To some extent, I feel customers are becoming more educated due to the convenience of Instagram and YouTube. And you can Google search, how do I keep a bearded dragon? And then they come to you at a pet store or a you know, buy and sell site. And they actually have more questions than the generic, how do I not kill this thing? And I feel like that's a shift that's changing. I've noticed it at least working at a shop. The amount of families that come up, yeah, we saw a YouTube video. Yeah, we've done some research versus the generic idea, which is slowly dying out regarding, say, a family wanting, yeah, we, we want a bearded dragon. What do we have to do? There is no more of that empty mindset in needing to be teached. Now people are actually starting to do a little bit more homework. And yeah. Because of that, it does somewhat make the industry sellers, these breeders, have to cater to the needs of their customers. Like, look at, say, um, am I allowed to name drop some bigger people in this podcast? Yeah, if you want to, go for it. So say like the uh, the business from a marketing perspective, say Snake Discovery, Mm -hmm. right? huge on YouTube and social media. People follow them like a religious cult, but <laughs> they are showing how they set up a rack system with hides and decoration and enrichment, even though more advanced keepers will argue. And that's a conversation for another day. But regardless, yeah. the customer sees that baby snake they want in a beautifully decorated tub and they want to support a breeder like that. Yeah. Or insert no-name breeder who's trying to make of money and he opens a sandwich box and has a crested gecko on paper towel. Yeah. What does the customer want to see? And so obviously there's a time and place and the whole demand for breeding. I mean, I do it myself. I oversee our ball python projects at the shop. Like I, I've set up plenty of freedom breeder racks. I know how that works. But at the end of the day, the customers might interpret that way differently than a serious herpeticulturist will. Mm-hmm. And with us being more visual on social media videos and photos we have to cater to what the people want even if it is slightly anthropomorphized and not necessarily what we know works regardless of how the animal is affected yeah you ever notice say like with tarantula people especially the hardcore tarantula i, I keep a couple tarantulas um, mm-hmm. mostly old world arboreals but regardless it's the fact that the tarantula people always post a photo of that adult female on a nice piece of cork. Yep. And then if you actually visit a tarantula's breeder facility, it's a cleaned out cheese ball enclosure, like cheese ball yeah. plastic <laughs> container, because that's what that species really needs. But the pet person yeah. wants to see it in a nice acrylic display. And I mean, granted, the tarantula husbandry person in me is like, well, they really don't offer substrate in these acrylic cages. Yeah. Again, conversation for another day. But the idea is from the mindset of the customer, they want what looks nice and what they 
would instantly <laughs> cater to the idea of ideal welfare. Even though the experienced person is like, well, if you set up a rack with the same substrate and you just provide heat, it'll do pretty much the same as if you set up a glass tank or a PVC with a radiant heat panel or mm-hmm. say, you know, something like that. It's just one looks better than the other. And when the customer is choosing who to buy from, they're going to pick the person that physically looks like they have higher standards. And obviously that standard is changing. I mean, snakes with UV lights. I remember I had read about the benefits of UV for corn snakes. And when I was 14, I got like a Zoomed Repti Sun on my corn snakes and people thought I was crazy. There's just a heat <laughs> pad with like a the T8 Repti Sun and they best. I would send photos. It was so cool. This normal corn snake, no fancy morph. I was like, yeah, check it out. He's basking. And now we understand this, these concepts of near infrared radiation and creating gradients with UV. And that is amazing. And as more and more customers are exposed to that, as the care sheet advances, saying we need uv we need this type of heat they're going to look for that in those breeders and if you aren't a breeder that's getting caught up to this higher standard of animal care and animal welfare you're not going to make money that's the reality i have huge wait lists for chinese water dragons even though i hardly produce any but people see my enclosures my care my you know what i put into these animals and yet I still have a waiting list of 50 people. <laughs> and yeah. it's, it, that's the reality. And what I end up doing is I just direct them to my other friend who's got a group of six males and 18 females. And then they're still supporting a captive bred ethically produced individual from a oh, breeder yeah. that shares my same views. Because again, I'm not trying to make money. I don't do this as a business. And while, yeah, maybe then that doesn't make me liable to tell people who make money telling reptiles how to make money. But mm-hmm. as somebody who understands the customer base, and through my experiences selling snakes to people at a shop, I can tell you the customers are becoming more educated, which is great. But then that does not mean that the breeders should continue to follow not as up-to-date care practices because the customers yeah. will call people out on it. And to some yeah. extent, the breeders can talk back. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, People are going to defend the way they've been doing something for a long time because they're successful at it. And I, I understand that. But there is that conversation to be had of, okay, you know, this can be beneficial for an animal through peer reviewed research and yet you still deny it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. Well, what do I, what do I know? I'm not a reptile breeder making money. <laughs> so I'm, I'm dumb. I'm right. I'm stupid. Well, I mean, we talked about this a little bit, you know, with, with our, on our episode with Zach Loafman, you know, when he was on the show and just like one of the, one of the, you can kind of take out the ethics, you know, in a large part from the argument, but even just based on like optics alone, it looks, it looks good to be able to display your animals in like a somewhat naturalistic setting, you know, as opposed to Iraq or whatever. And there's, there's value to that again, like from your saying from the customer perspective, but I want to hear what Phil had to say on this because I'm sure he's got some interesting insight. So pitching it to you, Phil. Well, so I don't know about interesting insight, but I, I just also want to say, sorry, my camera's not on. For some reason, I'm just not able, like my connection's just not cooperating with me at the moment. So it'll just have to be my voice. But at any rate, um, I also think that there's a, there, there's a couple of other, there's a couple of other wrinkles in this particular topic as well, because, um, you know, scale matters, you know, mm-hmm. like, like scale truly matters. And if, and if, you know, there are ways that someone might be able to uh, maintain their, you know, say ornate Euromastics 
if it's their only one mm -hmm. than when they're producing 300 a year, you know? Yeah. And, um, it, I mean, I'm not producing 300 a year, but regardless, um, it's, it, it, and, and it is not always a matter of, I mean, it is often right. Like, a, like, of course, if I was keeping retics and I was keeping them in too small of enclosures and I had too many of them, you know, as a result of that, yeah. Okay. You know, we're talking about now that's, that's, that's where that sliding scale, I think in my mind is going to, is going to edge over, uh, crossing a line of an ethical boundary in my mind. Right. But like, if you're, you know, for example, people might see my facility and think, well, he's just keeping them in these, cut out kiddie pools, you know, that's, there's just nothing, you know what I mean? Like, like there's, it's not exactly, it's not a toad ranch enclosure. It's, it's not a Tamora designs enclosure where it's, you know, incredibly well-crafted and, uh, you know, put together in a way that, that, it, that, you know, sort of has, has like the, the, the keeper's mind in, in the vision for its generation as well. So, you know, Again, I'm not I'm I'm not disagreeing necessarily. I'm just I'm just trying to I'm just trying to point out that there are ways in which scale changes the the way you practice and it and it you can do you, you know this can happen without uh without sacrificing the well-being of the animals you keep. Um oh, and yeah. I think one of the things that I tend to kind of rail against is you know this idea that Somehow, you know, I'm going to use a, a rather extreme and not, it's just a silly example, but like, you, you know, you're not a bad person if you don't keep your leopard gecko in, an, in a room-sized enclosure, you know? Mm -hmm. And, 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 and it, look, it's great when individuals can do that. I think it's wonderful to do. Um, but, you know, I, I just think it's worth pointing out that there are many ways to engage with the well-being of your animals that doesn't always look like uh you know some some, some habitat replicate replicant mm -hmm. uh facsimile in your in your in your in your in your home space you know it can it can take different forms i don't know i feel like it's worth yeah well i think that it's it's you make it distinction like i feel like this is important about like the the kinds of corners that can be cut versus those that shouldn't be you know and like like you can cut corners in in like the aesthetics or whatever of a of a habitat you know without eliminating the function fun functionality or like the the enrichment value to the animal at all you know and i think like the example of like your 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 kitty pools is a good example of that it's like you know you're not it's 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 not a uh, like you said it's not a Tamura Designs habitat that of a comparable size would cost you hundreds of dollars. It's instead it's a kiddie pool, but like you're still providing for the animal in all of the functional aspects that matter to that animal, you know. And so it's like that's an example yeah. of like of 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 um, you know cutting the right corners, so to speak, right. <laughs> rather than you know rather right. than like eliminating the animals capacity to, to be what it is and do what it does you know it's like you're still providing right. all of that while considering budget and scale in a, sure. in a way that makes sense 
Sure. But uh, so I, yeah, I agree with you. And I think that's the important distinction, but I, I will say a couple of things. The first yeah. being that, um, I think individual keepers, uh, oftentimes anthropomorphize in a way that's a little bit harmful, right? So they'll, they'll look mm-hmm. at, us, you know, and again, you know, we talk a lot about anthropomorphization and sort of how I'm in favor of it in various ways, um, you know, and not, and, and not in favor of it in others. Uh, but, you know, you talk about functionality, there are keepers who will look at the way someone keeps and say some form of, wow, that's like, can't you provide for them a little more? Can't you give them a little bit mm-hmm. more than that? Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, what you're doing is that what that person is doing is making a value judgment based on their mm-hmm. preferences, right? And, right? and their preferences don't always have bearing on, on what's actually the, you know, the experience of the animal in question. And, and so I can think of a great example of this. I remember years and years ago, long before I'd ever bred uh, any Euromastics at all, I picked up a pair of, uh, uh, Euromastix Philbii, and I had it put set them up in their in their individual quarantine enclosures, and you know keep in mind that Philbii are quite small, and these were sub adults, and I had each of them in an individual forty gallon breeder aquarium, uh, again as a quarantine enclosure, and I used uh, egg crate as a way of stacking not just stones, but uh, increasing surface area. And I remember putting this in, you know, putting a photo of this. I'm like, yeah, I got them set up in their new quarantine cages. And, you know, it's this whole thing. And there was one guy, uh, I mean, I don't remember him or anything. You know, I'm sure he doesn't, I'm sure he doesn't do anything interesting, but um, because usually if you're a complainer of this variety, you don't, but uh, (laughs) he, yeah, thrown a little shade there, but he, uh, he railed on me on the, on the, you know, on the pictures that I posted, he was like, Jesus, dude, can't you, you know, can't you just give them something else? Like why, you know, why do you got to go on the cheap like this? And this is like such a sad setup. And and it was like, dude, (laughs) first of all, it doesn't have to be, first of all, it doesn't have to be a Zumet branded hide, nor does it have to be a rock that I pulled from the, from the, from the yard that just mm-hmm. happens to look like the rocks they occur on in the wild for this to be a useful, healthful, engaging enclosure for these animals to quarantine it. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and I feel like, you know, that was a great example of a guy who like would never be caught dead putting egg crate in his cages, nor do mm-hmm. I think he should, I would never suggest that anybody has to do that, but you know, egg crate is a great example of a, of a, of a, a, a material and in a form that can have incredible utility for improving the lives of your animals if you have the, the sort of the requisite scale concerns and uh, disposability concerns. I mean, it's, you know, there's a, there's a lot of utility there. But mm-hmm. again, I know maybe I'm splitting hairs here, but I, I just feel like there are areas in which there's a, maybe gray, they're like a little bit gray areas where... Yeah you know, we, we could, it could probably be arguable, like, uh, you know, again, not to ramble here, but let's, let's think of a a different example altogether. Right. Um, so, you know, someone might look at the use of something like rock on a roll, which is this rock mimicking pond liner 
And I, I, I love it because it's not absorbent and I've used it as a bedding in, in many enclosures and it's got a lot of utility. Well, okay, but yeah, but, the, but your animals can't, your, your animals can't burrow anymore. It's like, you're just giving them a hard surface to be on. It's like, okay, well, have you seen Chuck Wallas in the wild? Right. Like, mm-hmm. have you seen an ornate Euromastics in the wild where they're coming from? Uh, they may not, I, I bet you a million dollars, there's times of the year where they're not burrowing at all. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, even when given the opportunity and option to burrow and dig and use humid hides, some of them don't even bother. They just don't want to. And that's their preference, not mine. Right. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. but um, the rock on a roll is a trade off in the sense that, okay, yeah, maybe it's not like three feet of topsoil, but it also is offering you the ability to keep your enclosure much cleaner, which is uh, like a welfare issue, right? If you're talking about cleanliness and disease management and whatnot, we're talking about something that has natural grip. Whereas if you're throwing them on some some sort of super fine play sand or bird seed um, is like an ergonomical concern that will add up over time and result in... in uh, muscular and joint damage, uh, no doubt over time. Uh, you know, so it's like, you know, we can, we can do things that are a trade-off that say, that say, all right, well, you know, maybe there's a handful of downsides to the way I'm going to use this particular piece of equipment or the way I'm going to use this particular style of husbandry, but the upsides might outweigh the downsides of that drastically. And I just think that inevitably there are going to be ways in which doing this in a captive setting and doing this for a purpose that goes outside of their ecological evolutionary purpose, we, we are inevitably going to make trade-offs that, you know, cross at least some modest ethical lines, no matter what we do, right? I mean, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm just feeling bitter. <laughs> no, you, you, I, I totally agree with that point. And I guess maybe I should have clarified is that I was trying to bring emphasis to the customers be, being more aware of how breeders mm-hmm. keep... From a scale perspective, Phil, I, I'm in the same boat as you. While I don't have a large collection, I'm a broke college student. No, I, so I for feel example, you, I, feel I, I don't have rocks. I use cinder blocks in a lot of my cages. Uh, right. I don't have a fancy Zoomed XL water bowl for the water dragons. I give them big sterilite tubs that I can change daily. Uh, in fact, that's something that Langerwarf always preached. And I'm still hesitant to post about it, but yet I cited him when I wrote that magazine article that I don't do big filtered water setups for the dragons because the bio load they emit the amount of water dragons i've seen in zoos and in private homes where they don't properly cycle that large water body the lizards just get so many bad bacterial infections or going all the way back to the start that idea of nobility work i've got a big cat litter box or a sterilite container you change that every morning because the water dragon has pooped in it by the evening so the water dragon goes in it Later that day, it is getting fresh water that in a disinfected tub, and it takes two minutes to change. Um, same thing with the idea of these cement blocks. The water dragons and the sail fins really like large rocky areas to sit on and bask, as well as branches. And I just grabbed three branches from outside, like mm-hmm. no pesticides. I know I'm going to piss a lot of right. people off with that, but it's free. And there's different bark textures, right? The The cement blocks... They're like the the ones that are hollow on the inside, so you can stack a bunch of them. So then if you angle a basking light on there, the lizards can have different 
heat gradients, but then it's almost like a poor man's REIT stack inside those hollow areas where that cement heats up over the course of the day. It's going to be different temperatures. Uh, it's not naturalistic. I, I totally agree with you, Phil. None of my setups look, look like the jungles of Vietnam. What I try to do is provide the environmental aspect that those animals would encounter through something that's cheap and that I can get because I'm broke. <laughs> that's, that's oh, sure. Reality. Yeah, no, I do the same. Um, like you were saying with egg crates, right? For baby water dragons where they still need their belly button to heal, you know, sure, those things deteriorate after two or three spray downs, but then you just throw a fresh one in there so that way it's clean. And then after they've had their first shed, I throw them in a cinder block or something in like a baby tub. And even then, other than my two glass tanks, which I use when I advertise for customers, great. Now I feel like I'm spilling all my secrets. <laughs> um, you know, it's like that way when they see a group of baby water dragons, they're in this, you know, white outsided tank with cork and a little bit of bedding. And then the rest of them are in plain bellied tubs with holes. So that way, as soon as I hose it, the excess water goes down the holes and drains because they're little. They don't need substrate yeah. by then. They need to have an enclosure that can be sprayed for five minutes so they can drink. Might yeah. they move around and dig and substrate when they're little? Absolutely. But daily hydration is so much more important than my opinion. So a basic tub or even a bare bottom tank that I can just soak the cage with the automatic hose for five minutes, they drink for a minute or two, and then I shot back that excess water out. That's more important for their welfare. Um, I guess what I was trying to emphasize on my earlier point is that customers are paying attention to how breeders provide those aspects. And I'd be willing to bet Phil that other than maybe some naturalistic Noxy or toxic keyboard degenerate who's going to argue that you're using egg crate. Most of your customers who actually do their homework on your mastics oh, yeah. know that you're providing those naturalistic aspects. And I didn't mean to come across um, oh, no, no, in no, no, a naturalistic no, no. way. No, but you're good. It's okay. No, no, no. Reference. No, no, no. I, I understand. I understand. I It, it wasn't I certainly wasn't like bothered or, or, or offended or upset by anything you said at all. No, don't, don't sweat that. I just meant that like, it's something You're that just I think about more frequently. nuance to it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I just, I just love, I mean, this is, this is a, an area that I feel passionately about, you know, I mean, we were just talking about, uh, the ways in which, um, social media has a tendency to drive and educate the way people do things. Right. It's like, well, Okay. You know, I'm old enough to remember when the Urban Gecko uh, put out like this video about like how to be a leopard gecko breeder. And it was like a VHS video that you could like send away for and like it would teach you how to be like a like a like a leopard gecko breeder. Right. Where And so it's like on some level, I find that sort of thing somewhat infuriating it, you know it's like it's a mixture of things right on the one hand i appreciate that someone would go through the trouble of trying to make a some some kind of some kind of education system to be able to do what we do in the same way that someone might educate somebody on how to be a beekeeper uh but you know uh, there, there's some other there's some other uh sort of peripheral ethical issues there which i'm not really going to get into but you know there's something about that that I find a little peculiar at the same time, I think that when, you know, if we're going to put ourselves out in the world and say like, look, here's what I do. Here's why I do it. We have to have a, a consumer base that recognizes that the needs of, of one person such as myself keeping and breeding Euromastics in Colorado 
it's going to be a totally different set of needs and demands than the kind of average person who happens to live in California, Florida, New York, Virginia, wherever, who's keeping one or two or five, even five euros. It's just going to be a very mm -hmm. different set of needs. And, you know, what, what I don't want to see is I don't want to see those kinds of differences and those kinds of subtleties between the ways and the wise people, the why, the, the way and the why that people keep very, I don't want to see that variability be reduced to, um, you know, like ethical, like, a, like the claim of ethics. It's like, okay, yeah, obviously sometimes it's going to come into play. Like there are going to be times when we can say, hey, I don't think this person is doing good stuff and here's why. And, and that's fair. You know, I think it's totally fair, but I just, I, I don't know. Maybe this isn't a fully formed thought on my part. No, it makes sense though. Like the idea is that you keep a large group of, say, your mastics in yeah, Colorado. So you've got an indoor facility because you couldn't keep them outside and you've got it heated with all of your lights or whatever. Whereas say some other guy in Florida, maybe has got a crap ton of dehumidifiers and that is different from how you do it. And this is just a very broad example. But what you're saying is that people might see you as the pinnacle. And therefore, even though you're keeping the way you are because of your exact living space, somebody in Florida is suddenly wrong because the totally different climate needs that they have, they have to change their husbandry sure. to meet the same aspects that are required for your mastics. It would be the same case, say, uh, in, with me and water dragons. None of my cages have got screen top ventilation because everybody's been talking about ventilation right now. It's all cross ventilation because that is the only way I can maintain 80 to 90 percent humidity indoors in the middle of dry ass winter in Illinois. Whereas my buddy in Florida, he keeps his outside year round because it's humid as all hell and they yeah. do just as great. But the idea is that we're still providing ventilation. He just actually might need more because they're outdoors. And if you make it stagnant, they're going to overheat. Whereas I need a little bit less but had to balance it out. So I still have adequate airflow. There's no fogging up on the glass because that air is stagnant, but I'm still meeting the same aspect or that care requirement is just provided differently. Yeah. Yep. All really well said. I mean, this stuff is, I feel like this is exactly the kind of nuance that, you know, I want newer keepers to be able to access, you know, and like if we're, if we're, if we're to like, you know, dream up our, our kind of hypothetical uh, ideal herpetoculture course. This is the kind of stuff I want to be encouraging people to think about. And hopefully we will be doing that a little bit with our kind of happy dragons webinar series that we're doing, but um, oh, yeah. it's just, sure. it's just so important to like sure. be considering this kind of like, yeah, considering all the different factors and all the different layers that go into the, informing these decisions. Cause it's like you say, it's like, what I'm going to do here in, in Northern California is not the same as what even a keeper in Southern California necessarily is going to be doing with their stuff and let alone across the country or, or, um, you know, in a different country or whatever, but anyway, yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, we are, I know we're coming up on uh, about an hour and a half so far in our conversation. So I'm going to start kind of directing us towards a gentle landing here. Um, but we do have a handful more questions for you. Alex, if you've got space for it, is that, is that cool? I've got plenty of time. I booked you cool. guys for the entire evening because I figured cool. we'd be talking a lot. Awesome. Thanks for that. Yeah. So um, 
I'm curious, like we've spoken a bit, you know, to some of your influences within herpetoculture and kind of some of your mentors within herpetoculture, but I'm curious if there are like influences outside of herpetoculture that, that, um, inform your perspective in herpetoculture that could be like in other disciplines or crafts or, you know, animal keeping endeavors, any of that. Um, I guess the bit, so I, my family is very, I guess, music oriented. Um, like I said, I'm a big Rush fan. So I play bass, electric bass. Nice. My brother plays guitar. My dad plays drums. And like with any instrument, I mean, I'm not a professional musician, but mm-hmm. the key is practice. Practice yeah. makes perfect, as they say, even though as you become a professional, you soon realize there's no such thing as perfect. And I just think learning bass lines over and over, trying to play along together as a family band playing with other people um i was with a friend here on my university campus and and just played bass for them and it was awesome just doing some improv stuff uh ironically one of my main mentors scott corning the salesman dragon person ever i mean he was keeping them before like back i remember he was telling me stories when he would pick up imported philippine sail fins from ron Saint oh, yeah. before the philippines protected them in 94 anyways yeah. when i had the the chance to visit his place and get hands-on sail fin care experience he's a guitar guy and he invited <laughs> his friend over to play drums and we just jammed for two hours right yeah that's like, awesome. and all that practice <laughs> builds up and so translating that to reptile care sometimes you know you want to learn Getty Lee's bass solo to free will, but it takes hours and hours mm-hmm. and hours of practice refining the notes, the finger style, you know, and especially Getty, he's doing plucks. I mean, he does oh, like yeah. flamenco style. Anyways, uh, regardless, it's that, that insane. sometimes, sometimes the, the biggest realities with reptile keeping is you just have to do that day to day work and see how it affects in the long run. I want to breed Chinese water dragons. Congrats. It's about a 35 day process between clutches. So sometimes all you can do is feed those lizards, practice feeding them well, practice gut loading. And the next thing you know, five weeks go by and you get eggs. Maybe they're good eggs. Maybe they're not. And then I learned, okay, didn't have enough calcium, didn't have enough vitamins. So I actually had a case where I had way too many vitamins last year and uh, that killed all of my clutches. It was a horrible experience, but uh, I I feel like I wasn't as a shocked because like a good mentor they say you're gonna fail eventually so i was just like oh well i tried something new it didn't work it cost three clutches of eggs but now i know not to supplement this way uh, which i could talk about later if you guys want but i would definitely say it's that idea of repetition practice which we talked about earlier that nobility work sometimes all you can do (laughs) is feed clean out the poop change the water and wait till the next day and maybe one of those days you get eggs and now you put them in an incubator and you set them up a certain way and either they go bad or, you know, 75 days later, you've got little water dragon heads poking out. And then maybe you try a different method. I actually tried sim containers for the first time this year and they hatched a little bit earlier because of the increased uh, airflow around the egg, which I thought was cool because, you know, like, wow, it hatched on day 68. Whereas normally if I did it in vermiculite or like my natural soil mix, it takes 76 days. So it's just cool stuff like that that you get to refine. But now I'm curious because was it the age of my female this year being 10 years old that I had such low fertility? So now with some of these raise-ups that I'm working with, I'm hoping it'll align well with me finishing my degree that by 2026, 
I will have a new line of things to practice with. Just as awesome. you practice that bass riff over and over again. And then you master the bass riff. Well, now you have to practice playing along with a band. Constant right. refinement. You're never going to achieve perfection. That's the reality. I've had to accept this. And it sucks mm-hmm. because sometimes I just wish, man, I really wish I knew how to trigger the release of luteinizing hormone in a female Chinese water dragon. So she could start going through vitellogenesis and then I could pair the male two weeks into it. So that way they could get, you know, copulations in order. And then I'd have fertilized. I don't know that. So instead mm-hmm. I just try and provide, provide every aspect to get them to breed. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you can't watch Getty Lee play free will over and over again. Cause you're not Getty Lee. You're you. <laughs> but if you learn the notes then maybe you develop your own technique and it'll be a little bit different as Phil just Mm -hmm. highlighted with different ways people may keep something. And then you learn the line. And at the end of the day, you get something that is pretty dang close, but it is never perfect. Yeah. That's sort of where we're trying to go is we want to replicate nature. As Phil said, we never will because we're using cinder blocks to let our lizards (laughs) bask. Right. There is no concrete in the jungle except the concrete jungle that is a city. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yet it's that aspect. It's that idea of practice that we refine in our care. That I refine in my bass playing. And that mm-hmm. allows me to continue my keeping. Well, as well as, a, you know, it, it, yeah, advice from the mentors, of course. I mean, I won't lie. One of the, I love listening to your episode of Eric Haycraft just because the husbandry of basilis is similar. Oh, yeah. And I mean, through him, I've learned a lot. And then taking mm-hmm. advice like Brian Shermel, Scott Corn, and Casey Schultz is another phenomenal sailfin and dragon keeper. And mm-hmm. it's just great that they're sharing that knowledge. And then I can practice that knowledge. So hopefully that it. ties together the disciplines. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's really cool to to hear you bring up music. It's like I was actually just thinking about this earlier today because I'm doing all my, uh, you know, herb care stuff today. And I'm listening to this podcast. It's actually, uh, it's a podcast called Dissect. And it's this guy who just, he goes through an album song by song and just like breaks down each song into its component parts and talks about what's making it all work together. And I love listening to it. And I'm not a musician at all, but I just love listening to this because I love music. And so um, I was actually thinking earlier today, like, how can I apply this to herbal culture? <laughs> it's this uh, podcast about uh, about dissecting songs, but um, that's really cool to hear and really, really an interesting and unexpected uh, take on that. So it's cool. Music, music is amazing. I yeah. I listen. I mean, my parents raised me on classic rock. So mm-hmm. I mean, like from the moment I came out of the womb, it was guitar riffs and bass solos and keyboard and drums, and mm-hmm. it's. Again, it's that idea of refinement and understanding and like music theory alone, which I suck at. I'm not even going to deny it. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I, I mean, I love watching movies and stuff, too. So listening to soundtracks and seeing how themes are incorporated, you know, again, it's, mm-hmm. it's that refinement, but yet similarities in different areas. And so apply that to anything for better culture, music, movies, I like at least in these hobbies that I'm highlighting, I'm sure there's many others that can tie something together because at the end of the day we all have our hobbies our interests our passions and within those passions there is some similarity between something all the way on the opposite end of the spectrum okay so reptiles is probably the amphibian people since it's reptiles i'm joking that's a bad <laughs> thing. but but regardless you know it's like you know maybe a, a musician can tie something similar to marine biology i don't know i'm just saying stuff now but there's got to be some connection there 
right? Eagles, it's, I mean, it's art, right? It's like, yeah. as a wise uh, man, Ron St. Pierre once said on this podcast, like, we're, we're fucking artists is what we are. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, it's cool to, it's legendary. Cool to see that. Exactly, legendary. legendary. Yeah, legendary quote. But yeah, that's really cool, man. Um, um, kind of expanding a little bit more, just like again, getting into the more personal sides of things. I'm curious about like if you can speak to like for you, what is like the most rewarding aspect of of this practice of this art form? You know, because I think that there's different things that make people tick within herpeticulture. So I'm always curious about like what is it that, that makes this person tick and that makes this process so rewarding. Wow, that's like the most difficult question. Everybody asks me, I know. Like, why, why do you, why do I, why do I keep lizards that look like dinosaurs? Yeah, and like it's literally the same thing with my aunts and uncles on Thanksgiving. How are the dinosaurs? It's so, yeah, I guess what do I find rewarding about it? See, uh, the, the animal caretaker in me loves knowing that I can try my best to give an animal an amazing life. There's something mm-hmm. about that. Maybe it's a like a parental instinct. Except mm-hmm. I project that onto lizards as opposed to human children, which I never want to have. Uh, <laughs> or, or, but maybe it's, I don't know, like going to school, the scientist in me says I'm contributing to knowledge. You know, like mm-hmm. all this, I have a massive spreadsheet from different water dragon breeders on what temperature did you incubate your eggs at? How long did it take them to hatch? If you held them back, what were the sex ratios? Oh. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't have said that. Shoot. <laughs> oh, great. Uh, edit that out. No, I'm joking. <laughs> oh, there's already some people that have talked to me and are well aware on my experiments. Anyways, uh, the, the idea is that, wow, I feel so dumb for slipping up on that. And I haven't even that's had any funny. alcohol. Um, so, <laughs> so I guess though, like, but yeah, so that's the scientist in me is this con- contribution of knowledge. Mm-hmm. You know, like, we want to know how often do Chinese water dragons lay eggs? Well, here you have it. I, from my data, from my personal animals, as well as animals housed in very different conditions, these are the similarities. The average is five weeks. Maybe based on the age of an individual, it takes longer. Like I had 39 days between clutches this year, but two years ago it was 35. And I've had a buddy mm. who had it be 31 days once. So who mm. knows? But the point is there's a rough average. That's data that we can use. So that's the scientist in me. But then there's also the non-reptile person in me that just thinks it's cool. Everyone needs a hobby. And mm-hmm. as I said, maybe this ties back more into that parental thought idea. I love waking up, having my morning coffee, breakfast, and then going straight to work, hosing lizards down and changing crap water. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds so weird, but it's just something that I enjoy. So much that my friends know not to text me until after 10 a.m. because I am on lizard hours, as they say. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's 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 why, honestly, it's that's why I, I view it that way. It's fun. It's rewarding. As I highlighted earlier, now when I'm home, I get to wake up and I get to look straight into the eyes of a lizard all the way from Southeast Asia. And I know that because unfortunately she was a wild caught animal. But then I think. That she has bred, she's she's mothered over a hundred babies. And I was almost said fathered because I guess it applies to the male too. You know, like he's important. He really doesn't have that big of a job, and you put it in all things considered. But there are people that have bought those lizards from me now, right? 
And they didn't have to unknowingly take that an animal out of the wild, but they still get to appreciate that lizard, this beautiful animal from Southeast Asia. And they get to wake up to it every morning and they get to see that rich emerald green color with those blue streaks and the yellow highlights. And if they're lucky, maybe it inherited that pink jawline, which honestly, I suspect all of them have it. I think just some people don't supplement enough carotenoids in the diet, which (laughs) nutrition is a whole other rant I could go on. But the idea is that you know, we get to enjoy the presence of these animals. There's something that you love about your Spoloides sulfurus, mm-hmm. and you probably can't describe it. You just look into that enclosure, and you're like, that is a badass snake, and here I am spraying it down. Yep. And that's sometimes yeah. all we can explain. I'm sure Phil has the same way. Even if he's got over 100 Euromastics, he probably looks at each one of those and is like, this is the coolest freaking you know, desert agamid lizard and I'm breeding these, and I have the privilege to wake up every day and view them. Mm-hmm. So it's an indirect answer, and it didn't get straight to the point. But hopefully, it involves no, links. I what can I say? I just I love dragons. I think they're cool, right? Like I, I'm not even lie. Even with this Zoom meeting, I'm staring at this sailfin dragon right up here because I'm like, dang, that is a beautiful Hydrosaurus celebensis. Even though I've seen this image probably hundreds of times rereading that paper and just it's, on Google, but. That's one of those creatures where it's just like, you look at it and it's like, wow, you know, like I, like it's a privilege to, to inhabit the planet at the same time as this creature, you know, yeah. it's so Everything. cool. Like the first time I saw a hydrosaurus, I was just like, these exist now yeah. on the earth. Like this is a real thing. <laughs> it's yeah, just and when you have, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm raising a couple right now mm-hmm. and a good friend of mine, I sent a reverse trio too. And um, I mean, like I said, when, I, when I'm home and I just get to wake up, like these things look at you, they're thinking. And yeah. there again, I don't want to anthropomorphize, but I suspect just in the case of the Hydrosaurus, them being a larger gamut, they've got increased brain space. And that oh, applies yeah. some sense of, I guess, neurologic, advanced neurological function. And I mean, th- like this is a lizard that comes from one area of the world, especially you know, in the case of the Philippines, like that's it. You know, you've got the four species from Indonesia, probably more. But, um, and like I said, you just get to be blessed with that animal's presence and you get to interact with it. Even if all it does is run to the other side of the enclosure and not want to do anything with you. You're like, man, that's so cool that that lizard hates me. And, well, there's that. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Well, um, before we hit our closer, I mean, Phil, Phil, do you have any any final questions you want to throw Alex's way before we kind of wrap it up. I mean, this has been great so far. I think, um, I think the thing to do would be to, uh, maybe, uh, have him on again in the future yeah, and yeah, maybe sure. do more, you know, in this, we could treat this more of, of like a sort of like, why are you doing this? And then next time we can do it more of like a, like a deep dive on, um, yeah. on, on, uh, on, on various sailfin and water dragons in particular and, and get into more nitty gritty. But, I think yeah, I uh, how. Yeah, I think that's probably the move. Cool, cool. I'm on the same page. Yeah, I think we gotta just have you back because I can already tell there's like so many like husbandry nuances and yeah, granular details that that we could get a lot out of. But um, I think for now it makes it makes sense to kind of wrap it up, and I'll I'll hit you with our closer question that you kind of already just answered, kind of similar question. So maybe I'll pitch this a little bit differently than I usually do, but. Our closer question is why herpetoculture? And um, usually I frame that as like, 
why do you do it? Why do we do it? Why does it matter? So maybe I'll guide you a little bit more towards those latter, the latter half of that, the why does it matter? Why do we do it, you know, in the world? Um, and a little bit less in the personal realm since we think we just got a lot out of that. So yeah. So why for pediculture in general? Somebody's gonna write this down, so I don't want to fuck this up. (laughs) Sorry, you were let me swear a little bit. Hopefully that isn't too bad. Oh, that's Um, fine. So yeah, why herpeticulture? So you know, I'll I'll try and tie this together from what we've discussed. Okay. I'm gonna do my best. I said I love movies, and I think I know the perfect movie quote for this. Yes. So what I'll do is if anybody knows the quote from the movie message me or email me they said my socials alex is a gum that's on facebook instagram but um okay so the things we talked about mentorship sharing knowledge and general appreciation and that's just it okay we're passing on things but here is the issue with herpeticulture right why herpeticulture because if you are the only person that knows this, you're not passing it on. You're not being a mentor once you have experience. Well, that's just it. So here's a quote. See, the problem with being the last of anything is that by and by there is nothing left at all. Now, sometimes things do come back, but that's a gamble of long odds, ain't it? There's never a guarantee of coming back. But passing on, that's dead certain. Mm. Love it. That's awesome, man. Thank you for that. Well, I think that that's a perfect closer. I mean, you you just said your socials at Alex's Gomets on Facebook, on Instagram. Is there anything else you want to plug before we call it a night? Uh, honestly, best way to reach me is email. Just as a student, I I don't have any social media on my phone. Uh, just be I I try to eliminate distractions. I there, I've had a couple people message me that think like I've just left the world i do um like i I am i respond to messages on there just Mm -hmm. might be at the end of the day because i keep all of that through like the business suite app just Mm because i i have to study i'm president of a student organization for pathology society like i have so much stuff on my plate but i will get back to messages so some people think i'm like dead i just post stuff when it comes up i'll probably post you know hey listen to this podcast but um if you need to email me so yeah i feel like i'm labeling myself more of a nerd already uh, hydrosorine at gmail.com because hydrosaurus at g yeah hydrosorine because that's the, the the sub family yeah yeah that encompasses all of them versus just the genus alone so hydrosorine at gmail.com and you can ask me any questions um i said i'm i'm still refining my techniques with re- the husbandry of the water dragons you know just because i've gotten them to breed doesn't necessarily mean they're all the way healthy but I'd also like to think that if I can get a female that was wild caught breeding at 10 years of age in captivity, I think I'm on to something. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not going to be breeding her next year just due to moving out finally. But, you know, any advice that people may value from me, I'm willing to share it. But all I'll do, as uh, as I said earlier, is, you know, do more research, right? Yeah. I will send you papers. I keep a ton of papers downloaded on my computer. So when I respond to emails, if you want to know the diets, I'll forward them to you. You want to know Hydrosaurus taxonomy? I will send it to you. Um, nice. Yeah, because again, that's not me. This is just knowledge that I have learned from other people and I want to pass it on. Awesome. 
Perfect, man. Well, I really appreciate the passion and the knowledge. And um, yeah, we'll definitely have you back sometime in the, the new year. It's obvious that we got a we got a lot more to talk about. So we'll 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 find a time, hopefully. Absolutely. And, um, I appreciate the opportunity, guys. This was a good conversation. Yeah, of course. Hell yeah. Man, I'm gonna hit the button.